Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, bullying works. Uh, at least that's one takeaway from news this week that Drew Barrymore will not be bringing her talk show back before the w- WGA strike is over. Uh, following an awkward Instagram post announcing the show would be returning and then a tearful video defending the decision to return the show before the strike was over that was quickly deleted, uh, Barrymore announced on Sunday that the show will be staying off the air until the strike ends. Uh, Barrymore's decision was met with cheers from the people online who had been viciously roasting her, calling her a scab, etc. And importantly, it led to other shows, including The Talk and The Jennifer Hudson Show, to follow suit. Everyone is afraid of getting dragged online, even Bill Maher, who backtracked on his plans to bring his show back, uh, but without the portions written by WGA writers, you know, like his monologue, the terrible, terrible comedy bits, et cetera, et cetera. That raises kind of an interesting side point here, which is, you know, if, if a show does segments that don't need writers, you know, like real times interviews or the roundtables. Does that really constitute scabbing if you do the show, but without the writing part? I don't know. Uh, I understand picketing a show that replaces union labor with non-union labor, but shutting down the production entirely, which those dozens of other crew members out of work uh, who aren't part of the union, that's a rough move. And I can, I sympathize. I empathize with the, the hosts who were put in a pretty tough position here. Um, still, it's very clear that social media has been a game-changing force in this strike compared to previous work stoppages in Hollywood. You know, uh, Twitter was embryonic in 2007, 2008, you know, around the last time there was one of these strikes. This has been a a huge game-changing moment and movement in terms of solidarity and all that. It's been really interesting to watch play out. The angst directed at Barrymore was unrelenting and pretty effective, which again leads me to my question, Alyssa, does bullying work? I mean, does bullying work or does organizing work? Um, same, same. I mean, they're not the same, right? And I think part <laughs> of the reason that, you know, Barrymore was sort of an effective target in this regard is that she has kind of taken up the mantle of like the daytime queen of nice, which was semi vacated by the reporting that suggested that Ellen DeGeneres was a pretty horrible backstage boss. Her brand is being sort of warm and fuzzy. And so she was particularly vulnerable to a a campaign of people saying, hey, what's the deal here? You know, everyone else seems to be acting in solidarity. The late night hosts, for example, have come together to do a podcast that is aimed at sort of generating support for the strike, both, you know, public and financial. Uh, Why are you the one going back to work? And, you know, I agree that I think the crews who work on these shows and on all you know, film and television productions are in a really tough position here. They're not going to reap big showrunner-style gains from any contract that's inevitably signed. They are more blue-collar professions. They're out of work. It's terrible. But, you know, the Teamsters have shown a lot of solidarity. The blue-collar professions in general have shown a lot of solidarity with the striking writers and actors. And I think I've seen a lot of writers sort of credit their support and solidarity as a factor in sort of keeping things together and motivating esprit de corps and sort of, you know, holding the broader industry solidarity together. So invoking them, you know, I think is a little bit of a tricky proposition from sort of an overall labor perspective. But Bill Maher, if he was 
picketed, if he was the subject of a lot of pressure, if he had been sort of the first target, he's a less soft target than Barrymore is. And so, you know, she was sort of out there first saying she was going to, the show was going to come back, but she also, her public image is more dependent on seeming nice than Mars was. And so um, she was, you know, sort of an easier target for that kind of organizing to say like, no, stay shut down, you know, help people see the impact of this and in sort of keeping parts of the industry that are on strike, you know, kind of publicly together. The late night shows are interesting here because if you remember back in the last writer strike, uh, those shows shut down for a little while and then they the the production companies there struck a side deal with the the WGA to bring uh, I think it was Letterman and Conan and maybe Kimmel show back and that has not been the case this time. I mean, I, the the all of the the late night shows are still shut down and remain shut down and probably will be through the end here. And I, I, I feel like that is a real difference. And I, I'm curious, Alyssa, if you think that this is, again, a function of, I, I really think that people are afraid of getting just blown up on Twitter in a way that did not exist 15 years ago. But Sunny, is this a sign of social media existing? Or are there other things in the industry that have changed that have made, you know, labor in the creative industries stronger in the middle of a sort of broad labor resurgence, right? I mean, you have seen efforts to unionize Starbucks and Amazon. You have, you know, the UAW on strike at the big three automakers, which has never happened at, you know, all at the same time. And so, yeah, social media exists. People don't want to get blown up on it. But also in the entertainment industry, the business model has changed radically. The threats feel really existential to people. And so, it's possible that just labor in general is stronger at this particular moment. You know, I I am a member of the Washington Post Guild. We're in, you know, we're a year into negotiating a new contract with management over there. And part of the reason I think this has been a tougher negotiation is because union density in the bargaining unit is up a lot. And that is in part a reflection of great organizing on the part of our leadership, but it is also a reflection of sort of big structural changes, the industry and people coming in and saying, look, I want, you know, a career here to be viable long term. And, you know, we're not even in the position of having our entire bodies scanned so we can be used to do whatever, you know, David Zaslav wants us to do. Right. I mean, so I think that social media is now available as a tool to unions in a way that they weren't, you know, that it wasn't during the last writer's strike. I think that is a real dynamic, but I also think that you have, you know, strong labor solidarity right now that is a response to threats that feel really existential, to massive changes in the business model. And so, you know, social media matters as a tool, but it's a tool that people have to decide to use and they need public sentiment to be on their side. And so labor has a different tool in its arsenal but labor is also in a different fight and labor is in a different position. I mean, Twitter, again, I think has been incredibly successful at helping the writers make their case to the general public in a way that did, simply did not, again, just didn't exist 15 years ago. Uh, Peter, were you surprised that Bill Maher uh, backed down? He, this feels like one of these things where he gets to be, you know, kind of the irascible, you know, bad boy of the, you know, late night talk show circuit. I, I, I am, I am frankly surprised, very, very surprised he backed down. So for what it's worth, he didn't back down, according to him, 
uh, because of any sort of external pressure. Instead, he tweeted that his uh, decision to return to work was made at first when it, he felt like there was no action, no, nothing happening between the writers and the producers and the negotiations were just going, were not even happening at all, much less going nowhere. And he said, uh, when, he, when he said, actually, I'm going to hold off coming back, uh, he said, now that both sides have agreed to go back to the negotiating table, I'm going to delay the return of real time and hope they can finally get this worked out. And, you know, however much you, you know, stock you put in that, that doesn't seem totally unreasonable or crazy to me is to say, well, it's one thing to to sort of hold off on working when it doesn't seem like there's any progress being made. At that point, like if there's no progress that's going to be made, you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. On the other hand, if there's if it looks like there's forward motion and maybe this thing's going to work itself out, then you can perhaps wait a little bit longer there. Yeah, uh, I'm very curious how other <laughs> members of the union feel about Bill Maher deciding, you know, he's he's the decider when it comes to how much progress is being made and, and how much how long that means he's going to sit on the sidelines. But if it, the strikes are still going six months from now, I would not be surprised if Bill Maher does, in fact, go back to work and put on his show the way he has said he's wants to put on his show, or at least the way he has said he was planning to put on his show in the absence of the writers, which is not to do any of the scripted bits, not to violate the the terms, you know, not, not to actually have anything that is written, not to have any written product, and instead just to focus on the conversational debates that he has argued are really the core of his show. And in some ways, this is a tool he can use to put pressure uh, on, you know, to, to some extent on writers um, and to, to push back and say, look, you know, I'm willing to wait this out for a, a certain amount of time. But at some point, uh, it's not just me. It's not just the show that, uh, you know, uh, that of which I am the centerpiece. It's it's all of these other people who have to work. And this is, I mean, this is, I think, a point that is increasingly becoming true. This is in the new Lucas Shaw newsletter uh, for uh, for Bloomberg. But it, Shaw writes, you know, that the damage from the production shutdown goes way beyond striking writers and actors. It's not, and it's also not uh, just, you know, sort of below the line kind of um, blue collar workers. It's also restaurants and real estate agents and all of these all of these jobs that Hollywood supports in local productions around the country. And there's a quote here from Casey Wasserman, who runs a big sports talent agency, uh, where he just says there's an entire city of people, L.A., uh, being affected by this, who don't have another means of income and don't have a union fighting for them right now. And Shaw writes that for many, it's like COVID without the sense of camaraderie. And so, I, I mean, it's you know, as I have said, I'm more sympathetic to the writers here than I am in the case of many union labor disputes. At the same time, the longer this goes on, uh, the the worse the blood is going to be, and the more that uh, a lot of little guys who are not actually, you know, who are not part of this dispute and who have no direct control over it, are going to end up being hurt. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. I mean, I I think, look, I don't think any of the writers want this to go on any longer than it absolutely needs to. So, you know, maybe maybe, you know, this helps get things over faster. You know, the the knowledge that none of this stuff is coming back. But I mean, look, there's still stuff that's going to be, you know, the masked singer, I think, is is supposed to be coming back despite that being a, a WGA show. Um, oh, that's going to be I'm, I'm really excited for that. We should do an episode on the masked singer. Well, I mean, look, it's uh, you know what? You know, who's excited for that is the people, Peter, the, the people love 
the mass singer. So, and that similar, would be you then, because you're a man of the people. Nothing. Is I not. am a man of the people. I mean, as you know, I like to mix with the hoi polloi and and get their sense of things, and they're all clamoring for more masked singer yeah. action. And I will just say to Peter's point, like no one strikes for kicks. You know, I mean, certainly there are people, there are wealthy writers who can afford to be out on the picket line in a way that people for whom, you know, guaranteed room size is an existential issue about their ability to stay in the industry and pay their bills. But look, the reason that the UAW, for example, is doing these sort of rolling pickets at different, you know, they're striking different production facilities kind of in sequence is so nobody has to go without a paycheck for too long, right? I mean, the writers and the actors are not hurting the little guys for the hell of it, but strikes are really hard. There's a reason that they're not that frequent, um, at least at this scale and this intensity. And so, yeah, I hope for everybody that this can be over soon on terms that work in some fundamental way all right so what do we think is it a controversy or a non-troversy that folks force drew barrymore and the other uh big wig talk show people uh, to honor the wga strike Alyssa, it's a non-troversy uh drew should just be lucky that she didn't end up with scabby the rat outside of her house in her studio peter i think the whole episode is a little bit of a controversy yeah, I, I think it's pretty clearly a controversy. I mean, there was a uh, you know lot, lots of angst, lots of anger, uh, but it's all it's all thing. Everyone loves Drew Barrymore again. Nobody wants to make mean fire starter jokes about her anymore. That's nice. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode uh, on the New Yorker uh, report on Hassan Minaj, uh, who appears to have invented a number of the stories he uses in his stand-up show, which you know not really a problem for a comedian necessarily. But maybe a problem for a guy who has positioned himself as, you know, a brave truth teller and the conscience of a nation and all that sort of thing. So we'll talk about that and what the what responsibilities uh, comedians have to the truth in these uh, sorts of situations. Now on to the main event, a haunting in Venice. This is Kenneth Branagh's third turn as Hercule Poirot uh, and his third time in the director's chair of a Hercule Poirot uh, adventure. It's a franchise in the technical sense of the term, uh, in, insofar as A Haunting in Venice is like more Murder on the Orient Express uh, and Death on the Nile before it, an adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel. It's similar, the same characters are running through it, et cetera, et cetera. But like those two before it, it is also perfectly capable of standing on its own. It's a standalone franchise. You love to see it. That said, I do think that these films work together uh, and form a nice little triptych, kind of improving upon the glibness of uh, much of Christie's source novels, or at least some of them. I'll be honest, I haven't read them all, but the, the ones I have read, I've always been mildly annoyed by. He infuses the mysteries with a real sense of melancholy. Yeah, there's still an element of fun to all of them. Murder mysteries are, you know, at least partly a game after all. We're all trying to guess who done it. Uh, but they have a heft to them. There's a sadness about the ugliness of murder, the the society-rending nature of it all. And A Haunting in Venice is no exception. At film's open, Poirot is living in retirement. He's fending off supplicants who hope for the great detective's help in solving their lives' various problems. He's finally uh, called out of retirement by Ariadne Oliver, who's played by Tina Fey as a sort of uh, like screwball Agatha Christie. Um, she's a mystery novelist trying to figure out the truth behind Mrs. Reynolds, a supposed medium hosting seances. Uh, she's played by M Michelle Yeoh. Uh, is Mrs. Reynolds a charlatan? Can she actually communicate with the deceased daughter of grieving mother Rowena Drake, who's played by Kelly Riley of Yellowstone fame? 
a murder mystery by way of a Halloween story. Uh, this style of picture calls to mind uh, directors like Orson Welles and Mario Baba. There's there's lots of deep focus. There's lots of Dutch angles. There's lots of fisheye lenses. Uh, Bronig is a bit of a ham, both in terms of his acting and in terms of his visual style. And listeners, I am here for it. I love it. I love it. And I wish uh, I could watch uh, one of these movies every two years. Uh, for the next decade. I, I, could, I cannot get enough of this series. I love it. Uh, one big improvement Haunting makes over Death on the Nile. It actually feels like it takes place in Venice, which is nice. It's nice for you know a movie to feel like it's taking place in the place where it's set. Um, the green screen work is fairly limited. You get some big shots of the Venice skyline, as I guess it was supposed to have looked you know, uh, 80 years ago. Um, but for the most part, you know, the, the, it feels like you're in a real place. There are canals everywhere. The palazzo that most of the action takes place in is appropriately distressed. And even though I, I would assume most of the interiors were shot on a studio in England somewhere, you know, at Pinewood or wherever, still the, the feeling of Venice transfers over because you have those great exterior shots. Again, I really enjoy this movie. And I like having this series of self-contained hour and 45 minutes to two hours and 10 minutes murder mystery type movies in theaters. It's uh, it's it's nice. It's nice to not, you know, have everything be a huge giant tentpole or uh, an aggressively arty indie film. I, I like having this kind of mid budget standalone feature. It's nice. Peter, you sounded a little less enthused over text than I was about A Haunting in Venice. Uh, why do you hate nice things? Why can't we have those? Oh, it's because I'm a terrible person with awful taste. All right. That's, uh, we're getting somewhere. We're making, we're making a move here. I wanted to like this movie. I really wanted to like it. I thought the first one was maybe not great, but really pretty good. Very enjoyable. More or less worked like it should. It's a murder on the Orient Express. It's a great story with a great twist ending. And uh, Brayna's Poirot was suitably kind of ridiculous and over the top and dramatic and theatrical in all the ways that he should be. And it just, it it, uh, it often looked great, even though there was some CG in that movie. It just sort of had this nice stylish pop. And then the series, to the extent that it is a series, really took a wrong turn for me with Death on the Nile, which not only looked like absolute garbage, it's just one of the worst larger budget. And yes, it's not a $200 million movie, but it was, I think, a 70 or a $90 million film. It looked absolutely awful. Every single exterior on the deck of that boat looked like the Photoshop green screen from 1996 in a way that was incredibly grating. But it wasn't just that it looked bad. It was also often poorly acted, poorly scripted, and even worse, very, very predictable with a weird pacing where like stuff didn't even happen till the middle of the movie. And I just, I saw the big twist in that film where one of the murders isn't actually dead and then these two people working together. And it's, I just saw it coming very early on. And this movie is better but it still has many of the same problems. It is extremely predictable. And the script is a little bit, it's just, it's not that great. It's also, it's also plagued by some pretty flat and pretty bad acting, unfortunately. So Brana is more more or less, uh, more or less amusing here, but is a little too hammy for my taste. Uh, And the, the woman who plays uh, Rowena Drake, Kelly Riley, is not very good. Kyle Allen as uh, the ex-fiance who is kind of suspect because he has 
gotten re-engaged to somebody else who is rich is also just not very good. And some of the other actors are are good enough, but I wouldn't say that there's anybody who really stands out beyond Brenna. I thought Tina Fey was kind of disappointing. There are a bunch of good lines that she reads hmm, just fine, just okay. Like she doesn't actually juice them fully you know there's just a bunch of there's a bunch left on the table in some of her very good lines one of which is something like i'm the smartest person i know and i couldn't figure it out so i went to the second smartest person you and she just sort of drops this line off like i don't know uh, there like there's no there's no intonation to it there's nothing there's nothing that actually accents or sort of focuses you on on the funniness and the and and what's interesting about that set of words she seems to just sort of be doing this pitter-patter thing where the character always talks in exactly basically the same voice the whole time. And it's a little bit of an act and it's a character that's quite distinct, but it's not actually doing the, the acting part of acting where you work through the lines and what they mean and create distinctive meanings for each one of the lines. And the movie was just plagued by mediocre acting. And then, of course, the I, I didn't catch every single twist. I'm not going to spoil it totally here. I will say I didn't figure out exactly what was going on with the honey, though it was very obvious that the honey would be important somehow or another. But the primary the primary villains, it was pretty obvious who they were about 40 minutes into this hour and 40 minute long movie to the point where I leaned over to my wife and I was like, this is who did it and how and why. And it's just it's just sort of an exercise in in expository hamminess that I that I wish I liked because this is the sort of thing that I want to see more of it when it's good and this is not a very good version and I, I with apologies to Branagh you can do better and Agatha Christie deserves better. My one critique on this is I don't know that Agatha I, I am the, I am the biggest Agatha Christie skeptic I know I just I for some reason her books have always rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, so I disagree that she she deserves better. I, I think I think Kenneth Branagh is elevating the material here, frankly. All right, Alyssa, what did you make of the movie? I think I probably liked it more than Peter. It's interesting, though, to hear you talk about this movie, Peter, because I am just almost never someone who's trying to figure out a story like this. And in fact, I'm sort of content to turn off that analytical part of my brain and just watch how the story gets me there. Um, I, you know, and part of it is like, I'm just not, I think I'm not sort of analytically clever in that vein. I would make a really terrible detective. <laughs> and so I, you know, I don't come into something like this looking to solve it. And in fact, that part of my brain was not sort of activated by this movie at all. For me, it was almost entirely sort of a mood piece. Um, this is maybe an odd question. Have either of you been to Venice? No. Okay. I have not. Okay. My husband and I went there, maybe it was before we got married. We went to Venice and Amsterdam. We did a canals trip. And, you know, Venice is just this very unusual physical space. And I thought that Brana did a really nice job of capturing the extent to which it can seem it can alternate between seeming very open and very closed, right? And so, you know, you have these beautiful canals, you have these sort of rooftops, you have these vistas, but it can feel a little bit like a maze. It can feel unnerving to be there. You know, you have this contrast between 
these outlying islands of Murano and Burano that are, you know, kind of brightly painted and cheerful in some ways that are really compelling. And then Venice, which, you know, can just feel very different in the daytime and the nighttime. And I felt like the movie did a nice job of matching the sort of potential unease of the physical space to the unease in the characters' minds. And I don't know if either of you read Matt Zoller-Seitz's review of this movie. He loved it and analyzes the aesthetics in ways that are I find very interesting. A bunch of it, the interior of the house was shot at least partially in Venice, um, and then some of it on sound stages or some CGI. But the sort of mental unquietness of the movie comes through in a way that you know, it made the whole thing just feel melancholy and unnerving to me in a way that I found quite affecting. And I will confess, look, I am just a total sucker for Kenneth Branagh. Like, watching his Henry V in a history class in high school was, I wouldn't say, I don't know, maybe it was a formative cinematic experience for me. But watching him and Emma Thompson, you know, sort of duel in those that final scene, watching him do the St. Crispin's Day speech. Like, he's just one of those actors who kind of got to me at the right impressionable moment. And I've always really loved him and am willing to grant him a lot of latitude. And the way he plays Poro's bitterness in this movie is compelling to me. And it's entirely possible that I'm grading him on just a sort of massive curve. I do agree with you, Peter, about Tina Fey. And it's interesting to me that, you know, she has not, She's kind of not found her niche or has not found herself as an actor after 30 Rock, a show in which I just enjoyed her tremendously. I think she's someone who is immensely talented and who, in some interesting ways, should have been able to make a lot out of Ariane Oliver, someone who is smart and frustrated and bitter and kind of instrumental about her intelligence in a way that Poirot is not necessarily. I mean, it could have, this could have been more of a duel about the ways in which you use intelligence and for what ends and how do you approach the world when you're a lot smarter than everybody else. And she doesn't make that land. And that's a shame because I do like her. I want to like her more than I have in pretty much everything she's been in since 30 Rock. And so I probably like this movie in spite of itself a little bit, but I found being in it enjoyable in a way that I certainly did not with Death on the Nile. I certainly agree that the mood and imagery in this movie is handled really quite well. There's just some great imagery all throughout, and the exteriors in Venice in particular are excellent. I wanted this movie to open up, though. I understand that the nature of the thing is that it's a little bit of a sort of closed off island, you know, in, even inside Venice, right? That they're all kind of trapped inside that house. And that that's the point. That's how these mysteries work. I, I totally get that and respect that. But every time this movie ventures beyond the main murder house, every time it gets out into Venice and you can see the city, the movie becomes much more interesting and much better. And I think... As, again, as much as I understand that's both part of the concept and also what keeps the, the budgets down for films like this, because shooting in Venice is very complex and very expensive, especially these days. I, I just I wanted a little more exploration of the city. And 
it did, but it did. It looked, it often looked quite good. And that was a big contrast to the previous film, which I now suspect just given the release date and some of the issues was probably plagued by COVID related FX issues because that movie should not have looked as bad as it did. It It is possibly the worst looking of the moderate to large budget films we have seen over the past couple of years, maybe with the ex- exception of uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Yeah. Again, I, I can't stress enough how much I, I think this movie improves upon its predecessor, specifically in the use of location and space. Again, it feels like it took place in Venice and yes. that's because part of it took place in Venice. Yeah. They actually did some real shooting there. There's something to be said for on location shooting still. Yeah, I I should say to say something nice about this. It's not just that it looks markedly better than the previous film and the previous film looked like garbage. It's that it looks good in its own right. And this was often an interesting movie to look at, even if I didn't particularly care for or about what was going on screen. And it has a visual point of view, right? I mean, it is sort of, I mean, it is campy and ridiculous and claustrophobic. and it's, you know, it's meant to make you feel weird. And it succeeds at that. I mean, it's like, it's a pleasant little ghost story. Um, and it would not work nearly as well as it did without the odd angles and, you know, sort of distorted images, but also just the taste with which the details are chosen. You know, you've got a lot of sort of little close-ups on this clock or, you know, a just lots of little physical objects in the building in a way that are, you know, convey a sense of time and taste and this sort of meeting of eras in Venice in a way that works nicely. One thing I was thinking about after, before and after and kind of during this movie uh, is how the first Thor movie still is my favorite of those particular, you know, MCU pictures because Bronick is a, a, Again, he is kind of a hammy visual director, if that makes sense, right? He's he's both a ham in terms of like he loves to get a nice accent and chew on it, and you know, you see it in uh, in his work with Christopher Nolan in particular uh, these these last few years. But the, the visuals of it, you know, the Dutch angles and the the tilt zooms and the you know all that stuff, it it just he likes to play with the camera in a way that emphasizes kind of some of the. Shakespearean theatrical heft that he brings to these pictures. I mean, again, the the Thor movie is basically Shakespeare in in space, um, and I think he has brought a similarly serious dynamic to these pictures, which again I, I like a lot. All right, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on a haunting in Venice, Alyssa? Thumbs up. It's like the perfect movie to go to with your grandma, and I don't I don't say that as an insult, right? I say that actually as a compliment. Yeah, I think I saw that the age numbers on this movie, 85% were above the age of 25 or something like that, which is uh, that that is a very old skew for this movie, which as a as a person above the age of 25, I appreciate Peter. Sadly, I just don't think it worked. Thumbs down, even though I wish that this movie were better than it is. Boo. Uh, thumbs up. Again, I love these movies. I could do I could do one of these every two years uh, if Bronagh and uh, 20th Century Studios have it in them. All right, that is it for this Tuesday's episode. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, who makes us sound much better. He's got his work cut out for him this week. Uh, maybe you can probably tell, but I am working off of my phone. My laptop had a fun 
adventure with a cup of coffee this week. So uh, that is uh, hopefully next week we'll be uh, all good again. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Recommendation from a friend is the best way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love this episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch, and I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next Friday.